Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. Hello again, my weary traveler. In our last journey together, we immersed ourselves in the enigmatic realm of the Cathars, a heretical Christian sect that thrived amidst the tapestry of Western Europe during the mystical ages of the 12th and 13th centuries. This time of history represented one of medieval Europe's most cataclysmic chapters, which ended in a devastating genocide that echoed through the corridors of time. Today, we'll be exploring this further by learning more about the Dominicans, the order of preachers who were in charge of decimating the Cathars, labeling them as dangerous heretics, as violent enforcers for the Catholic Church. We'll also learn about one of the most successful propaganda campaigns that has ever been run, that came straight from the Catholic Church, and how much of this propaganda 
still fuels much of how society views certain topics today. In the background, you'll hear peaceful sounds of a cathedral library. If you listen closely, you can hear the monks chanting, scribes, writing, Immerse yourself in this world and come with me as we explore. The order of preachers known as the Dominican Order or Dominicans is a religious order of the Roman Catholic Church founded in the Languedoc by the Spanish canon Dominic Guzman and approved by Pope Honorius III in 1216. After Dominic completed his studies, Bishop Martin Bazan and Pior Diego de Archibus appointed him to the cathedral chapter, and he became a regular canon under the rule of St. Augustine and the constitutions for the Cathedral Church of Osma. At the age of 24 or 25, he was ordained into the priesthood. Membership in the Dominican order includes friars, nuns, active sisters, and lay or secular Dominicans affiliated with the order. The friars are all ordained Catholic priests. Members of the order generally carry the letters OP, standing for Ordinis Predactorum, meaning the order of preachers, after their names. The Dominican order was specifically founded to combat Catharism, and Dominicans soon established the Inquisition when it became apparent that preaching and debating produced almost no converts from Catharism. Their identification as Dominicans gave rise to the pun that they were the Domini Canis, or Hounds of the Lord. In England and other countries, the Dominican friars are referred to as black friars because of the black kappa or cloak they wear over their white habits between Halloween and Easter. Dominicans were black friars as opposed to white friars, such as the Carmelites or gray friars, known as the Franciscans. They are also distinct from the Augustinian friars, the Austin friars who wear a similar habit. In France, the Dominicans were known as Jacobins because their convent in Paris was attached to the church of Saint-Jacques, now disappeared, on the way to Saint-Jacques du Halpa, which belonged to the Italian order. The Dominican order came into being in the Middle Ages at a time when men of God were no longer expected to stay behind the walls of a cloister. Instead, they traveled among the people, taking as their example the Cathars, who emulated the apostles of the primitive church. Dominic Guzman's new order was to be a preaching order, trained to preach in local languages, again copying the Cathars who preached in Occitan, rather than earning their living. 
Dominican friars would survive by begging or selling themselves through persuasive preaching. They were both active in preaching and contemplative in study, prayer, and meditation. As today, the brothers preached while the sisters prayed for the success of the brothers' teachings. In the spring of 1203, Dominic Guzman joined Prior Diego de Acebo on an embassy to Denmark for the monarchy of Spain to arrange a marriage between the son of King Alfonso VIII of Castile and a niece of King Valdemar II of Denmark. At the time, the Languedoc was the stronghold of the Cathar Albigensian belief. Prior Diego saw immediately one of the paramount reasons for the spread of Catharism. The representatives of the Holy Church lived openly with an offensive amount of pomp and ceremony. On the other hand, the Cathars lived in a state of self-sacrifice that was widely appealing to the common man. For these reasons, Prior Diego suggested that members of the papacy begin to live a reformed Cathar style, i.e. apostolic life. The prior and Dominic Guzman dedicated themselves to the largely unsuccessful conversion of the Cathars. According to legend, Dominic Guzman became the spiritual father to nine women he had reconciled to the Catholic faith by miraculously facing down a demonic black cat in the church of Fanjou. In later traditions, they would become Cathar perfects, converted by his convincing arguments. Prior Diego died after two years in the mission, so Dominic Guzman continued to develop his new order. Guzman established a religious community in Toulouse in 1214 to be governed by the rule of St. Augustine. Founding documents established that the order was created for two purposes, preaching and the salvation of souls. The Dominican order developed rapidly into inquisitors. The Dominicans were formally appointed by Pope Gregory IX to conduct the papal inquisition. In his Bull Ad Extrapanda of 1252, Pope Innocent IV authorized the Dominicans' use of torture. Before the persecutions of the Inquisition really got going, Cathars seemed to have regarded the Roman Church much the same as everything else in the material world. But increasingly, evidence seemed to confirm that the Roman Church was actively allied to the wrong god. In the first place, the Roman Catholics venerated the Old Testament but the God of the Old Testament was not the good God that Cathars recognized. He was, as anyone can confirm themselves by reading the Old Testament, ignorant, cruel, bloodthirsty, and unjust. For Cathars, the God of the Old Testament was the Demiurge, the supernatural being that we associate with the devil. In other words, for the Cathars, Roman Catholics were voluntarily worshipping Satan. Other Catholic beliefs and practices 
seemed to provide confirmation to the Cathars. Anyone who attached great value to material things was at best mistaken, and at worst, a disciple of the bad god. And here again, the Roman church seemed to qualify. Cardinals, bishops, and priests lived in great luxury and dressed in gorgeous robes. Even churchmen recognized the fault of their fellow shepherds. Pope Innocent III, the richest man in Christendom, noted of the Archbishop of Narbonne, quote, He knows no other god but money, and has a purse where his heart should be. His monks and canons take mistresses and live by ursery. Throughout the region, the prelates are the laughing stock of the laity. Cathars knew their scripture and could cite Matthew 7.22, quote, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will hold on to one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Further, the Roman Catholic Church encouraged the worship of material objects such as the relics of saints. And worse, it venerated the cross, not only a material object, but also an instrument of torture. All this seemed to confirm to the Cathars that Roman Catholics were worshipping the god of evil who had created this world, that the Roman Church perverted Christian scripture, replaced ancient rites with new ones, and persecuted minorities provided yet more confirmation. They drew what seemed obvious conclusions from Matthew 7, 15-16. Watch out for the false prophets who come to you in the guise of lambs, for within lurk voracious wolves. Only their fruit will tell them apart. So it was that Cathars referred to the Roman Church as the Church of Wolves. Almost all modern historians are incredibly sympathetic to the Cathars. Even the most scholarly and objective works, laying out the bare facts as fairly as possible, come across as sympathetic. Here's a quote from what is generally regarded as the best English language academic work of the 20th century, referring to the Cathars. None were humbler, none were more assiduous in prayer, more constant under persecution, None made more insistent claims to be good men, and it was on those terms that they were received by many of the common people. The Gospels were their guide for conduct. Their celibacy and their austerities were those of the monastic ideal. Their criticism of the Orthodox clergy was hardly more severe than that characteristic of other Puritans and Reformers, their disdain for that of the material world was rivaled by that of anchorites, whose sanctity was revered by the church. This is in stark contrast to how the Roman Catholic Church sees and speaks about the Cathars and their quote-unquote heresy. The church's modern views 
expressed by writers like Hilaire Belloc, and are not very different from those of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. To most objective authorities, the more serious accusations against the Cathars appear to be based on no more than propaganda. No organization has ever used propaganda to such a good effect as the Roman Catholic Church. The very word propaganda is derived from the name of part of the Roman Church set up to propagate the faith. For many centuries, the Catholic Church provided a set menu of accusations against any group of which it did not approve. Pagans, Eastern churches, apostates, schismatics, heretics, Jews, Muslims, witches, Templars, numerous people of the New World, and so on. They were all accused of black magic, worshipping Satan, consorting with demons, aping Catholic rituals, murder, cannibalism, incest, bestiality, sodomy, and a range of sexual excesses. Cathars were no exception. All of the preceding accusations were made against them, however scant or contrary the evidence. An example of the contrast between propaganda and truth is provided by the disparity between the alleged and real attitudes to sex. According to Catholic propaganda, Cathars, including parfaits and parfaites, habitually engaged in sexual excesses, including regular orgies. At the same time as propagating these calumnies in the Catholic Church, authorities were detecting heretics not by their sexual excesses, but by their sexual purity. We have a striking example from the 12th century in the Archdiocese of Reims, where a group of heretics were discovered through the refusal of a young girl to submit to the sexual attentions of a clergyman. The refusal of a girl to submit to the clergyman's sexual demands appears to have been so unusual that she was questioned and admitted that she believed that she had an obligation to keep her virginity. As a result, she and her friends were investigated more closely, and soon a nest of heretical believers was exposed. The heretics were described by the Archbishop Samson, who asserted that the heresy was being spread by interant weavers who encouraged sexual promiscuity. The Roman Church accused Cathars of various crimes and sins. These claims ranged from the true to the preposterous. Here, we will untangle them. Each of the following charges is dealt with separately. First, we'll discuss claims that Cathars perpetuated blasphemy. An intriguing accusation made against the Cathars was that they taught that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had engaged in a sexual relationship. It's difficult to know if this was just propaganda. On the one hand, it hardly matches the Cathar view that Jesus was a divine phantom. On the other hand, there does seem to have been a school of Gnostic dualist thought that there were two Jesus Christs, 
one divine and good, the other earthly and bad. Cathars could have well believed that the bad earthly Jesus had gotten married. Also, this was an accusation made frequently in the very earliest years of Christianity, and it's consistent with other hints. Early Gnostic Gospels have Mary ranking above the other apostles, and one refers to Jesus kissing Mary on the mouth. In any case, the accusation concerning a sexual relationship is not an invention of modern fiction writers, as is sometimes described. The accusation appears in works by 13th century inquisitors and church chroniclers. Here is an example from a Cistercian monk. Quote, Further, in their secret meetings, they said that Christ, who was born in the earthly and visible Bethlehem and crucified at Jerusalem, was evil, and that Mary Magdalene was his concubine, and that she was the woman taken in adultery who is referred to in the scriptures. According to some authorities, the Cathars believed that Mary Magdalene was not merely Jesus' concubine, but had been married to him. As Durand de Hewesca tells us, writing between 1208 and 1213, quote, They also teach in their secret meetings that Mary Magdalene was the wife of Christ. She was the Samaritan woman to whom he said, Call thy husband. She was the woman taken in adultery whom Christ set free, lest the Jews stone her. And she was with him in three places, in the temple, at the well, and in the garden. The Roman Catholic Church also took issue with the Cathar views on marriage. One of the claims that supported the propaganda against the Cathars was that they rejected marriage. Since God had enjoined marriage, it must be sinful and heretical to reject the idea of marriage. There was some truth to the underlying charge. Cathar teaching was that procreation enslaved more angels in human bodies. It followed that procreation was bad. In Catholic thought, one of the three explicit purposes of marriage was procreation. In canon law of the Catholic Church, people who could not procreate could not get married. Eunuchs, for example, were, and still are, disbarred from marrying in the Catholic Church. If procreation was undesirable for Cathars, then marriage must be undesirable too. The reasoning held in some respects, but failed to accommodate nuances and qualifications. The first is that the Cathar concept of marriage, which was very different from our modern idea of marriage, for Cathars, the word marriage denoted not a ceremony joining a man and a woman, but a ceremony joining the entrapped soul with its spiritual body in heaven. This was one of the functions of the Cathar ceremony called the consolamentum, a ceremony preserved from the earliest days of Christianity, from which the various orthodox mysteries and Catholic sentiment evolved over the centuries. This interpretation enabled Cathars to read and interpret the New Testament without discomfort, since references to marriage could be interpreted as referring to this spiritual marriage. The second qualification is that in Cathar thought, the horror of sex and reproduction applied principally to parfaits and parfaites, which meant that these strict 
guidelines only applied to the prophets or priests and priestesses of the Cathar religion. Ordinary believers or credentes were not expected to remain chaste, though it would be desirable if they did so. There appears to have been no stigma associated with marriage between ordinary believers, and it's known that many believers did marry and raise families. In this, the practice of the Cathars again represented a preservation of the earliest Christian practices, where virginity was the ideal and marriage was an acceptable second-best option. As Paul put it, it's better to marry than to burn. Virginity could be combined with a form of spiritual marriage. In different ways, both Cathars and Catholics retained the idea. Virginity and chastity for Cathars was associated with their spiritual interpretation of this marriage. Virginity and chastity for Catholics was associated with a different form of spiritual marriage. Monks were thought to marry the church on their induction into the order. Nuns were thought to marry Christ. In some orders, they were known as the brides of Christ. They still don wedding dresses, wedding crowns, and even wedding rings on their inception into the order. Another ancient practice preserved in different ways was that of becoming celibate after having been married. This was an extremely common practice, indeed standard practice in the early Christian church, as it remained standard among Cathars. It was, for example, very common for noble women with Cathar sympathies to marry and raise families, and then, with their husband's consent, to begin an ascetic life, culminating in taking the consolamentum, and so joining the ranks of the prophetess. This too had a parallel in the Catholic Church, where it was common for men to abandon their wives in order to become monks or priests. Similarly, Catholic noblemen often packed their unwanted wives off to nunneries. In both cases, the Church regarded the original marriage as dissolved, so that the person could remarry either the female Church or the male Christ, according to their gender. Related to this practice is the apparent anomaly that although a Catholic priest may not marry, the church has no ban on married men becoming priests, as many have done and still do today. From all the evidence, no Cathar seems to have been unduly exercised by the fact that believers married and raised families. How else could those awaiting reincarnation ever be freed from their cycle of imprisonment? Even so, the simplistic interpretation by which Cathars should abhor marriage seems to have some practical implications. For example, it seems to have provided a strand of argument for propagandists. According to them all, Cathars rejected marriage and were therefore heretics. The propagandists appear to have fudged the distinction between believers and parfait and presented the rejection of marriage as a horrific heresy in itself. The audience were unlikely to know that virginity was such an ideal in the earliest church that the propagandists could hardly admit that the real Cathar practice of chastity represented exactly the ideal of chastity that monks aspired to or the ideal of celibacy that priests aspired to. Anyone who believed the propaganda from the Catholic church could deduce that Cathars would not marry and that anyone who was married could
should therefore not be a Cathar. Although the reasoning is flawed on two different counts, it does seem to have been articulated as an argument by people accused of being Cathars by the Inquisition. Here is a revealing appeal by one Jean Tesseret accused of heresy. He said, Listen to me. I am not a heretic, for I have a wife and I sleep with her. I have sons. I eat meat and I lie and swear, and I am a faithful Christian. However, it did not save him. Further inquiries were made. Tesseret was burned alive in 1250, and his wife condemned to perpetual imprisonment. Another piece of Roman Catholic propaganda aimed at the Cathars was that of incest. There is no evidence that Cathars were given to practice incest. The accusation probably stems from the observation that the Cathars regarded all procreative sex as equally bad. So Catholic theologians reasoned, Cathars must regard sex between man and wife as being as sinful as sex between man and mother, and therefore, they must have practiced the latter. Doesn't make much sense, does it? The next piece of Catholic propaganda aimed at the Cathars had to do with sodomy. There is also no evidence that Cathars were given to practice sodomy. The accusation probably stems from the observation that the Cathars regarded procreative sex as worse than non-procreative sex. So Catholic theologians reasoned, Cathars must regard sodomy as being less culpable than conventional sex, and must have practiced the former. This was an effective and persistent accusation. Remember that Cathars were given many names. When they first appeared in Western Europe, they were known to have come from the area now known as Bulgaria. They were thus called Bulgares, a word that church propaganda turned into the French bourre and English bugger. Ironically, sodomy has always been widely practiced in the Catholic Church, though never formally condoned. Various church orders were famous for it. Voltaire was particularly fond of making fun of the Jesuits about how widespread anal sex was in their order, and it was not only practiced between Catholic men, anal sex was commonly practiced in Catholic countries between man and wife as a means of contraception. Since Cathars had no moral objection to other forms of contraception, it seems likely that, on average, Cathars would have had less need for recourse to this practice as a means of contraception, so it's possible that they practiced sodomy rather less than their Catholic counterparts. Another piece of Roman Catholic propaganda aimed at the Cathars was the practice of bestiality, or sexual interaction with animals. There is no evidence for this claim either. The accusation is based on the idea that heretics were interested in and given to kissing the backside of cats. There seems to be no genuine evidence for this practice, nor any plausible explanation about how the accusation arose. If you'd like to have a very entertaining and bizarre Google image search, you can search kissing butts of cats, medieval art, and you'll get what I mean. One Catholic authority writing about 1182 tells us about many reformed Cathars who admitted that at night groups of heretics, quote, sit waiting in silence 
in their respective synagogues, and a black cat of marvelous size climbs down a rope, which hangs in their midst. On seeing it, they put out the lights. They do not sing hymns or repeat them distinctly, but hum them through clenched teeth, and pantingly feel their way toward the place where they saw their Lord. When they found him, they kiss him, each the more humbly, as he is the more inflamed with frenzy. Some the feet, more under the tail, most the private parts, and as if drawing license for lasciviousness from the place of foulness, each seizes the man or woman next to them, and they commingle as long as each is able to prolong the wantonness. It's notable that such accusations were made against other groups that the Roman Catholic Church regarded as its enemies. For example, the same accusation was used a century later against the Knights Templar, and then against supposed witches. One factor is that Catholics imagined that the devil liked to adopt the form of a cat, which also explains why cats are associated with witches in the mainstream Christian mind. The most likely explanation seems to be the fevered imagination of some unknown medieval churchman with potentially some questionable kinks. Sounds like projection to me. That's definitely a personal side note. <laughs> All it would take was one deranged Episcopal Inquisitor plagued by fantasies of the feline podex. Such an inquisitor could extract whatever question he wanted from anyone who came into his power. The confession would then be established, an accepted view of how heretics and the devil operated. This could be confirmed by any number of further confessions extracted under torture or extreme duress. Positive feedback loops like this proved any number of unlikely accusations, sailing in sieves, flying through the air, taking animal form, demonic visitations, and so on. The name Cathar may be derived from a German word referring to this particular calumny about cats' backsides, but it rather backfired when everyone assumed that the name must come from the Greek word for pure. The next piece of Roman Catholic propaganda aimed at the Cathars was regarding sexual equality. The idea of women having power over men was hateful to the Roman church, relying on an injunction by St. Paul that women should have no dominion over men and a number of similar biblical assertions. Soon after it had developed a priesthood in the early centuries, the Orthodox church from which the Roman Church would later split off, started to minimalize the role of women. At this time, women were barred from the new priesthood, and prominent women in the Bible were concealed by a simple name change. For example, Julia, who was prominent among the disciples, became Julian. Deaconesses disappeared later, and later still, women were even excluded from choirs. By the Middle Ages, the role of women in the early church had been completely forgotten, and St. Paul said everything on the matter that was needed. 
from this perspective, it seemed anti-Christian to allow any form of equality to women. Churchmen were horrified, therefore, to learn that Cathars had not only parfait, male members of the elect, but also parfaité, women members of the priesthood. This was probably exacerbated by misunderstandings. For example, Catholics never seem to have understood that Cathars did not recognize a priesthood. In their minds, women parfaité were priestesses, worshipped by ordinary believers. The truth would have been bad enough, but this seemed to be an even more pernicious blasphemy. Although the Waldesenians were doctrinally as opposed to the Cathars as the Catholic Church, they nevertheless adopted some Cathar ideas. For example, permitting women a role in spreading the faith. Here is the Cistercian Alan of Lille writing against this heretical idea around the years 1190 to 1202. Quote, if it is a dangerous thing for wise and holy men to preach, it is most dangerous for the uneducated who do not know what should be preached, to whom, how, when, and where there should be preaching. These reasons resist the Apostle St. Paul in that they have women with them and to have them preach in the gatherings of the faithful. Although the apostle says in the first epistle of the Corinthians, let women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted them to speak, but to be subject, as also the law saith. But if they would learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. Times do change, and equality of women is now regarded as laudable outside the Roman church, there's therefore a danger of misrepresenting parfaité as being fully equal to the parfait. The truth is not quite so straightforward. Certainly, parfaité, or the female priestesses of the Cathar faith, underwent the same training as their male counterparts. They took the same vows at identical ceremonies. They led the same ascetic lives and probably enjoyed the same rights, at least in theory. In practice, the female Cathar priestesses do not seem to have traveled and preached, nor did they normally administer the consulometum, or do they seem to have been elected as bishops. Instead, they often lived together in communities, often in large houses. In summary, Neither the propaganda of the Roman church nor the rosy picture of the Cathar apologists is right, but both are near the truth, which is that women treated much more like equals of men than they were in the medieval church or in the modern Roman church. It's possible that the Cathars treated women in the same way that the earliest Gnostic Christians had treated women, initially unaware of St. Paul because they predated him and later ignoring his innovative opinions. The Roman Catholic Church also described that Cathars engaged in other types of sex crimes, another piece of propaganda it attempted to push. A Christian principle adopted by St. Augustine from the ancient Greeks is that every part of nature has a proper function. 
This reasonable sounding proposition can be extended to a less reasonable conclusion that every part of nature, and in particular every part of the human body, should be used for its proper function and for nothing else. This idea was still familiar to Christian believers in the 20th century, generally to justify prohibition. If God had meant you to smoke, he would have given you a chimney. If God had intended you to swim, he would have given you fins. If God had intended you to fly, he would have given you wings. This sort of argument has been largely abandoned. Applying it consistently takes theologians where they prefer not to go. But there's one example of this idea that's still applied almost as strongly as it was in the time of the Cathars. God had designed the sex organs for the purpose of reproduction, so it was and is wrong to use them for anything else. In particular, it was and is of the utmost importance that semen should be deposited in a human vagina. Every sperm is sacred. This idea explained many aspects of Catholic theology which seemed odd to outsiders. Not only did it justify bans on sodomy and contraception, but also coitus interruptus and masturbation. Coitus interruptus, I'm assuming, meaning the pull-out method. On this question, Cathars held almost exactly the opposite view. While Catholics taught that semen should be deposited where it could lead to conception, Cathars held that semen should be deposited anywhere that it could not lead to conception. So it was that on one hand, practices like masturbation could be no sin whatsoever to Cathars, and why on the other, Catholics could believe it to be a heinous crime against God. Who practiced it more is a different question and one to which we do not know the answer. Catholic teachings following the traditional line of argument have now been abandoned, or at least are no longer openly advocated. For example, as we know from medieval penitentials experiencing a nocturnal emission, or wet dream, was a far more serious sin than committing rape. The former involved spilling seed outside its divinely appointed receptacle, and the latter, rape, involved depositing it in the correct receptacle. The former, therefore, was a serious sin, and the latter was not. One charge of Roman Catholic propaganda against the Cathars is undeniable, and that is of vegetarianism. Cathars or at least their priests and priestesses, refused to eat animal products. Not only meat, but also milk, cheese, and eggs. Some at least refused to eat honey, apparently on the grounds that it, like the morning dew, was the product of monthly copulation between the sun and the moon. In many respects, Cathar Parfait, or their priests, resembled modern-day vegans, except they did eat fish. The justification was that fish, as they believed, did not reproduce sexually, and so it could not imprison a soul as other animals could. That fish reproduced asexually was a genuine and widespread belief in the Middle Ages. The same error 
underlay the Catholic practice of eating fish on fast days. This practice is still alive and well in the Roman Catholic Church, as many people still eat only fish on Lent for these same misguided reasons. It's a vestige of the same error of the common practice of serving fish on Fridays. Fridays have been traditional fast days. Incidentally, the Roman Church classified such diverse animals as beavers and barnacle geese as fish with the happy consequence that their fast day diets were not as boring as they might otherwise have been. Another such wheeze was to eat animal embryos on the grounds that they lived in water, the fluid within the womb, and so also counted as fish. Inexplicably, but happily, the logic does not seem to have been applied to human fetuses, thank God. For many centuries, the Roman Church regarded vegetarianism as a capital crime on the grounds that God had given man dominion over the earth and had provided animals for him to eat. Inquisition records include cases of people being required to kill and eat animals, often chickens, to prove that they were not Cathars. Failure to do so meant death. The mainstream church was hostile to vegetarianism well into the 20th century. In Britain, a government minister, John Selwyn Gummer, could still publicly ridicule vegetarians as being anti-Christian as late as the 1980s, citing the traditional argument that God had given man dominion over the earth and provided animals for him to eat. Vegetarians are still regarded as vaguely anti-Christian by many denominations, even today. The Inquisitor Alan of Lille noted that while Catholics refrained from eating meat because it promoted sexual desire, Cathars abstained from meat because of their teaching about the transmigration of souls. They thought the flesh might contain a morsel of soul that, according to this accusation, would somehow become even more earthbound if ingested and metabolized. Our next piece of Roman Catholic propaganda aimed at the Cathars was that they were somehow perverting the natural order. To the conventional Roman Catholic mind, human society is planned and ordered by God. God has ordained what is natural and what is not. The problem arises when we need to distinguish between what is natural and what is not. If we look to evolution or to human nature, we do not always arrive at the same results as the medieval church. To an objective outsider, it looks as though the medieval church hierarchy used its own cultural preconceptions to distinguish between natural and unnatural. Broadly, anything the church agreed with was natural, and anything the church disagreed with was unnatural. Under these rules, the church and everything it stood for were natural, and anything opposed to the church was unnatural. This outlook explains the enmity of the Roman Catholic Church to many aspects of the Cathars. For the Roman Church, their views were orthodox. Other views were heretical. Their ideas on sex were right, and other views were perverse. Their views on women were God-given. Other views were blasphemous. 
Their religious rites and books were divine. Other books were vile, satanic parodies. So, too, for ideas about suicide and meat-eating. For medieval Catholics, the feudal system was part of the natural order, no less than the priesthood. For those of you who are unaware of the feudal system, it is the hierarchy of serfs or peasants. One up from that is knights, up from that is barons, up from that is earls, and then one up from that would be kings. Everyone was born to a particular station in life. The idea of monarchs reigning by the grace of God, quote-unquote, was to be taken, literally. Catholic churchmen were horrified to find that in Cathar lands, very little value was placed on this hierarchical feudal system, and the natural order seemed to be inverted. A knight might bow down to a Cathar priest who was an ordinary commoner. In theory, it could be even worse. A count might bow down to a female Cathar priestess. Perhaps the best illustration of how easily current fashion was mistaken for the natural God-given order is provided by attitudes to biblical injunctions. Catholics were horrified that Cathars would not swear oaths and were not in the slightest moved by the fact that Bible says clearly and repeatedly that oaths must not be sworn. The feudal system and the church courts relied on ignoring this part of scripture. Again, Catholics were mystified by the Cathars' refusal to kill. Catholics took it for granted that it was God's will that they should kill almost anyone or anything that they wanted to. The next piece of Roman Catholic propaganda aimed at the Cathars was regarding suicide and euthanasia. The Roman Catholic Church regarded suicide as a mortal sin. It therefore made much of this heinous crime. For Cathars, there was no reason to regard suicide as a sin. According to their theology, death represented an opportunity for the soul to escape this earthly hell and return to the realm of light. They apparently did not regard the commandment, thou shall not kill, as applying to suicide. Theoretical acceptance does not imply, as some Catholic authors still suggest, that suicide was common by any means. We know that ordinary believers led fairly ordinary lives, almost in spite of their theology. They married, had sex, raised and cared for their families much like anyone else. The Cathar practice was probably much the same as one accepted by educated people in classical times and by the overwhelmingly majority of secular thinkers today. Greeks, Romans, Cathars, and humanists could all condone suicide, finding no moral objection to it, without manifesting any inclination to practice it themselves. Some Cathars are known to have undertaken the endura, a form of voluntary euthanasia, generally in anticipation of imminent death. Perhaps if someone got sick, or was near death anyway. Similarly, believers who were mortally wounded might take the consolamentum and then simply refuse to eat or drink. In this, they saved themselves imaginable suffering and, as they believed, won their place in heaven. Oddly, there is no record, as far as we know, 
of Cathar is captured by the Inquisition, choosing to undertake the Endura or kill themselves. Catholic propaganda might have been expected to make much of such heinous self-murder. It could have easily have fabricated suicide stories, as some modern Catholic writers do. But it did not. Why not? We may never know. I hope that going through the different types of propaganda pushed by the Roman Catholic Church can give you a bit of a deeper understanding of the impact this propaganda has had on society at large and how all the groups of which the Roman Catholic Church did not approve, the Cathars, the pagans, Eastern churches, Jews, Muslims, witches, Templars, and other foreign people that they could not understand, were all accused of black magic and worshipping Satan, consorting with demons, murdering one another, or engaging in horrific acts of cannibalism, bestiality, and incest. I hope you can understand this a bit more deeply now, and look at it with a bit more of a critical view. Why were the Cathars brutally murdered? How can we continue their story? How can we look deeper at things we are told to believe? I'll leave you with a quote from a more modern writer, Asata Shakur, from her book Asata, an autobiography. She is an American political activist who is a member of the Black Liberation Army. She wrote, The less you think about your oppression, the more your tolerance for it grows. After a while, people just think oppression is the normal state of things. But to become free, you have to be acutely aware of being a slave. I want to thank you for venturing into the unknown with me. Full details about the selected text are available in the episode description. Selected readings are for the purpose of research, study, entertainment, discussion, and consciousness expansion. The views and opinions expressed in the included readings belong to the original authors and creators and may not necessarily reflect my own. The episode description also contains links that will allow you to join the Night Night Bitch community on social media and support the continued production of this podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast player so you're alerted when new episodes are released. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, Lingering in the golden gleam. Life, what is it but a dream? Night, night, bitch. <laughs> <laughs>